0: Hi, I'm Jay from San Diego. I'm Chase from Seattle. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash
1: donate. I'm Jesse
2: Thorne. In 1985, the band Till Tuesday had a hit video on MTV. Their singer Amy Mann became kind of famous, but she didn't like it.
3: It did not suit me very well, I have to say. I mean, I think also Till Tuesday's, you know, big hit Voices, Carrie, was kind of right in the beginning of of MTV. And, you know, that was such a novelty that we became really recognizable very, very quickly. And once I kind of had people recognize me, then I was really off the idea because I, you know, just found it kind of uncomfortable.
2: So she took her career a different way. It's bullseye. (laughs) This week, I talked to Amy Mann. She'll explain her transition from an 80s pop star to a solo performer who writes mostly to her own taste.
3: I'm not that person who's like, I have to make everyone in this place love me, all 10,000 of you. I'm more like, uh, here it is, I hope you like it. If not, then cool.
2: And then I'll talk to Seth Godin. He's a kind of a creative marketing guy, but not in the sleazy way. He's actually pretty brilliant. And he gives credence, I think, to Amy's point of view.
0: Finding the intestinal fortitude to do work that some people don't like, to put ideas into the world that some people are going to criticize, is actually what it is to be an artist.
2: Plus, Jordan Morris ranks what's best in America, somewhat arbitrarily. And I suggest you check out Orson Welles' final masterwork, F for fake. Or do I? All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on the show, we are joined by one of our favorite culture critics to recommend some stuff that's worth your time. This week, we're talking about rap music with our friend Andrew Nas from Cocaine Blunts. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? How's it going, Jesse? Oh, it's going great. I'm excited about talking about these songs. Let's take a listen to a little bit of Mouse on the Tracks' Get High, Get Loaded, featuring Fiend.
4: Seven in Monte Carlo, Roscoe with my car though. Got grass like a pop get cash like a auto. Break down cigars, peel sheets, we burn goodies. You burn us be on strong liquor. and know the smith's damn well, look like. All Magnolia Street, paint sweet as a donut globally. Dump the wee key. Please be able to spot your and know your leaves. Tree poke, yes, the piano, the mouth, the man handle. Nothing like a hide that a volcano can hand you. OG Kush is ear waxed, last hits. Mouse in the track and Jones.
2: This song is, it has an absolutely beautiful beat. It sounds a lot like, um, it sounds a lot like a uh, uh, like a Rap-A-Lot record from the '90s. Like it could have Scarface and Devin the Dude rapping on it.
1: Well, at, at the risk of going like deep into rap nerddom here, a lot of the old Rap-A-Lot sound came from a Louisiana producer by the name of NO Joe, and he kind of brought that Louisiana funk to Texas for Rap-A-Lot, and it's just always been something that's kind of been there and been around. In rap music in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, tell me a little bit about what you like particularly about this song. Well, I mean, it just kind of jams. I I like how it reaches back, like I said, the pre-rap history of the area of the Gulf Coast. I like the fact that it's got Fiend, who's an old New Orleans rap veteran from the No Limit days, kind of rapping over the sort of thing he would have rapped on in the late '90s.
2: Let's get a little bit less mellow <laughs> and take a listen to basically, I was gonna say, my favorite song of the year. I'm gonna upgrade that to Century. That's how I'm feeling right now. Uh, it's a song called Hit Me by Mystical.
4: What's up, what's that? What, man? I don't know. What the fuck? Can't the people, Can't you miss, I'm the one you've been missing and wish for Listen, all, right. all commands will be coming from the goddamn top. Hit me! All right. I'm the maestro. I'm the nigga with the institute. Oh yeah. Range director, conductor. Any other poker name you could think. Of. Hit me! Right. I got drums and shit. Tom Tom. Congos and bongos and guitars okay. and keyboards and Hit it! Hit Hit it! Hit it! Hit it! Hit it! Hit it! Hit it! Hit it. Hit it. Oh,
2: man, I enjoy that very much, Andrew. You can tell. I, I have to say, wow.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of the response everybody had when they heard this record. Uh, Mystical is one of the great rap energy men, and he's somebody who can sustain that level of energy with like absolute precision as a rapper as well, which is a skill that not many dudes have. Um, And he's channeling James Brown, and it's incredible.
2: He manages the energy of the song exceptionally well. I mean, it's not just turning everything up to 10 and pushing it as hard as you can the whole time. This isn't an Onyx record where somebody's just yelling at you. No, you're absolutely right. Let's listen to some more of it. I love this song.
4: Hit it! I'm getting too old to be calling names Saying, boy, this is because it's all the same On top of that, the rapper's always getting all the blame is it really because he took such a off the chain? Hit it! I check a pound, check a pound, pound Tweet up, I got something for that round, round Black man, put your pick up, put round crown on Put your
2: pick up, man, break it down
4: now
2: Andrew Nas is the proprietor of the blog Cocaine Blunts. He also writes regular columns about hip-hop for Pitchfork, The Fader, Hip-Hop Pit Stop, and more. This week, his recommendations, Mysticals, Hit Me, and Mouse on the Tracks, Get High, Get Loaded, featuring Fiend. Andrew, thanks as always.
1: Thanks for having me, Jesse.
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Amy Mann rose to fame fronting the new wave group till Tuesday. She had on lace gloves with frilly cuffs in the heart-rending video for their hit song 1985's Voices Carry. In the
5: dark I'd like to read his mind But I'm frightened of the things I might find Oh, there must be something he's thinking
2: Since Mann went solo 20 years ago, she's in many ways become the archetypal indie singer-songwriter. She now has eight acclaimed records under her own name, and her music for the film Magnolia made her an Oscar nominee in 1999. Mann's latest album, Charmer, is in large part about likable people twisting and tearing relationships. Here's the title song.
5: When you're a charmer The apples fall People respond. They can't see the hidden agenda. You got the one,
2: man. Thanks so much for uh, being on Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. So, um, <laughs> As I was listening uh, to that song and a couple of other songs with similar themes on the album, um, I I was thinking about the fact that you have, especially over the last 10 years, aligned yourself personally with uh, the alternative comedy world, which is full of people who are necessarily charming, it being their business, and uh, also are human beings underneath that charm in in every positive and and negative way.
3: Well, it's interesting to think about that cuz now I'm sort of going over the the comics I know and thinking not all of them are that charming. <laughs> <laughs> I think interesting and mesmerizing but not necessarily super charming. Uh yeah, I I mean because as as you know, comics are Probably even more disturbed and broken than than the average musician. Uh, so, so I think it's it's hard, It's more likely to find a lack of social skills in the comedy world. I'm sure they're going to be coming after me with their long knives at this. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, there, there's some there's some nut jobs in 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 amongst the comedy world.
2: I'm interested in because of the fact that you you have as good a perspective on this as anyone in the world as far as i'm concerned <laughs> Thank you. Um, the uh the differences between the social um and personal problems of comics and musicians w- what what are the things that crop up in in each group and and how are they different because they're both obviously groups of people who had a hard time connecting with the people they wanted to sleep with as a teenager and decided to dedicate themselves to honing a skill that would impress people
3: maybe i mean i certainly think that's a that's a subset it's not the subset i know um the, you know that that's not in my personal subset really um I, it's interesting. I mean, I you know a lot of the musicians I play with are of a of sort of a musician slash nerd subset. You know, the ones that uh, that talk for hours about uh, you know different old keyboards and Moog sounds and you know pedal bass and fuzz fuzz boxes and you know like just kind of gear gear nerds. So it's not like I don't really know the kind of rock star dudes who are you know getting all the ladies kind of people um i don't know like the comedy thing to me is just uh is just like it's bewildering cuz you are so out there without a net all on your own but i i think it's like you know it's kind of like a doubling down. Like you you're really you're you're absolutely risking ego-wise, you're risking it all, but the payoff is really big, you know, when when you hit it and the and everybody's laughing and you're totally killing your you know, that's that's a probably a bigger payoff cuz you know when I play a song, out of politeness people are going to clap. You know, maybe they'll clap a little louder, maybe they you know, maybe they won't. But but you're not going to get uh it's not like an all or nothing proposition like comedy is. So I don't know. It's interesting. I just I think that's you got to be a certain kind of certain kind of person who's almost got nothing left to lose to to do comedy. I
2: I had never seen uh, the video for um, the Till Tuesday song that we heard in the introduction, which was your first big hit. Yeah. And um, it is it it is extremely new wave. Aesthetically, yes. <laughs> um, what,
3: the, the video itself, or the song,
2: the video yeah. itself. I mean, it could. I mean, the the song is to a great extent as well, but the video in particular. I mean, the aforementioned, you know, lace gloves with cuffs. With I love how the, the, the and, detail
3: you you're really paying attention to the detail because I don't remember this at all. I just remember <laughs> like long gloves, you know, like eh, give her some gloves that look like uh, somebody would wear it at, at an opera.
2: And and um, you know, you you look frankly spectacular. Um Thank you. but I I wonder if that was something that was part of your identity or whether it was just the aesthetic that was going on and you thought of yourself as a you know popular singer you know a singer of pop music um without the I'm trying to think of a word that doesn't include the sort of insulting part of that but you know like a popular music singer And uh, and the new wave was just the thing that was happening.
3: Yeah. I mean, it probably was like, honestly, it probably I I, I, it probably was just that it was the thing that was happening. And I kind of got got into, uh, you know, I mean, I was like 24. So um, my bent is more towards, you know, harmony and melody. I mean, I do. That's you know, that's where I live. It's not so much the stylistic thing so yeah I, that was the the new wave thing was the just really what was happening i'm I'm sure if I had grown up in the country rock era, I would be busting out the country rock instead do
2: you, did you have a like a specific cultural identity? Did you think of yourself as a member of a a group of people doing a thing?
3: no you know just like anyone you you kind of wanna to you know like have your look and your sound be like you know, be commensurate with other looks and sounds that are happening that you think are cool. You know? So I think I think I was probably you know trying to achieve the hair of of uh John Lydon and the, you know, and the sound of uh you know the Thompson twins or the Cars or something.
2: Um what what is it like to be uh twenty-four years old and have a big hit record?
3: I it did not suit me very well. I have to say. I mean, I think also, I was probably like a very young twenty four. In that, you know, I sort of look at people like Taylor Swift or Katy Perry, who are, I mean, they're in their early twenties still, right? And and uh, and I'm like, not in a million years could I handle that anything anything about that situation. You know, talking on talk shows and. And playing giant show, you know, arena shows and awards shows and and red carpets. Like, okay, I'm not in a million years could I? I mean, that's like a whole. It's like 80 different skill sets that I, I like it, are totally beyond me. Uh, you know, we we came till Tuesday's. You know, big hit voices carry was kind of right in the beginning of of MTV, and you know that was such a novelty that. Um, you know, people we became really recognizable very, very quickly, and you know, people following me back to my four hundred dollar a month apartment, you know, in the middle of the day was just. I mean, I just found it threatening and creepy. You know, I it's it's hard to, it's hard to feel. I think unless you're a giant narcissist, it's hard to like really enjoy that. It just seems like I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to say to people. Um, you know, if people say like, "I love you," you're so great. You're like, "Thank you." I and the, I don't have anything to say past thank you. Um, and and also, I don't. know, It was very strange because we were very recognizable, but we had no money, zero money. We were living on one hundred fifty dollars a week, and we were opening for the, this tour for Hall and Oates, who were huge at the time. They were playing arenas. We were driving around in a van and sleeping two to a room in Motel 6. And it was, you know, like a just this really weird, uh, d- disparate, uh, you know, on the one hand being regarded as kind of like a TV glamorous thing and on the other hand just being completely broke.
2: Did you feel like part of the issue was that there was sort of pressure associated with Being a TV glamorous thing that like you had to represent this band in the idea of being a rock star, and you had to be good at it when you hadn't had any practice.
3: Yeah, and I was terrible at it. I mean, I'm just not. I'm absolutely not formulated for that at all. I'm not. uh, You know, a lot of the stuff that comes along with that is is uh, record companies kind of having the expectation that you're going to do a lot of sort of like kind of ancillary promo stuff for, for them and, and visit radio stations and glad hand people. And man, I didn't know how to, you know, I mean, that was just not my, not in my wheelhouse whatsoever. Um, yeah, it's, and, and keeping up this sort of front and, you know, and I did have like a lot of people saying from the record company or management or whatever, like, you know, trying to give me Uh, instructions how to, you know, like, you got to get on that stage and own it, you know, like, make your gestures bigger, like, I'm not a big gesture person. I don't know what that, I don't, I'm not like super, I'm not that person who's like, I have to make everyone in this place love me, all
5: 10,000
3: of you. I'm more like, uh, here it is. I hope you like it. If not, then cool. Somebody else will be, be along shortly. And then you know for a second record i started I started writing songs I had been writing songs on the bass, which because we were doing this kind of you know like semi dance pop stuff and uh and then I started writing songs on acoustic guitar, and I immediately just felt like this is so much more my thing um it's just it feels smaller, it feels more intimate, it's more about the song. It's less about you know this kind of spectacle or sound or presentation
2: do you remember a particular song that you wrote um that felt different to you that you were really happy with
5: yeah it was uh, the
3: probably one of the first songs that i wrote on acoustic guitar was this song called coming up close that was on on our second record it was just to, you know totally different i mean it was a real acoustic guitar based kind of thing and uh and it was totally different you know and of course the record company was like no we want more duran y stuff
2: did they actually say that to you in, in those words? No,
3: but, I mean, they wanted a record that sounded like the last record.
5: When I well, he and I in a borrowed car Went driving in the summer, promises and every star Out in the distance I could hear some people laughing I felt my heart beat back A weekend's worth of sadness There was a farmhouse that had long since been deserted We stopped and carved our hearts into the wooden surface We thought just for an instant we could see the future And we thought for once we knew
2: that was coming up close by the band till Tuesday. My guest Amy Mann was their lead singer. You ended up um, in this multi directional. Uh, major record label uh, disaster show um, with at, at, at around the time of your, I, I guess, the third Till Tuesday yeah. album, which was, um, you know, you had. Maybe you can. You're probably will do a better job of I than of describing this sort of ten car pile up. Of uh, record contracts and
3: well, it's such a mess. It's hard to know how to nutshell it, and I don't. I don't want to really like super bore anyone with you know details of like my my contractual junk. Um, the third, okay, so Till Susie had, had the first record was a big hit. The second record, I think, like did okay, but it but its sound was really different, and I, I don't think they knew what to do with it. And so the third record, um, by the time the third record came out. The keyboard player and the guitar player had both left to do other things. And um, a bunch of new people came into the label. And this is like a real classic thing where, you know, the new, the new A&R guy is like, well, we just want to make sure that you're like cool with writing with other people. And what that means is like, will you write with the sort of Hollywood, you know, hit doctors, which, you know, which all the, I mean, all this, you know, Katy Perry, like all those people do now. If you hear any hits on the radio, it's it's the quote co-writes with these people, um, you know whoever happens to be top of the heap, and um, you know me naively, I'm like, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I just wrote a song with Alice Costello, and they're like, oh, well, that's not what we're talking about, <laughs> and uh, and then they were like, well, your contract is up for renewal, and we're not sure we're going to renew it, and the record has just been released, like you know, two weeks before, so, um, you know, we. So we just think that you should go back in the studio and make another another record. And I'm like, well, I just, like, I just made one. It's pretty fresh. Two weeks, two weeks old. And, like, they clearly just wanted, you know, they wanted to have, like, a controllable, formulaic, you know, situation. You know, I I was like, well, if you you clearly, like, don't like what I'm doing, so why don't we just go our separate ways? And they said, uh, well, we'd release you from your contract, but we're afraid you're going to go to another label and have a have a hit. So, so they wouldn't release me from my contract for 3 years and I think at that point they thought oh her career is definitely over so we could we could get rid of her now. I I read um
2: somewhere you describing yourself being so distraught in this period of time that you not only were not only were uh, upset with the record labels but upset with the situation the sort of uh, catch twenty two situation to such an extent that you you couldn't even just enjoy music generally speaking
3: yeah it you know I think it it gets to god, you know like it's it's great to think that you can not be affected by that, and I always think that i'm not going to be affected by other people's outside opinions, but um you know, when they're the only people listening to your stuff and commenting, you start to just feel like a loser. You know, like everything I do is just not good enough. You know, everything, every song that I've played is like, eh. So, I've, so then I go, all right, I'm eh. Like, I accept it. I accept that I'm eh. You have now convinced me. So everything I write now I, as I'm writing and I go, hey, why finish it? Because nobody cares. And, of course, it's a false, you know, I mean, people do care, but they're not getting to hear the music. You know, they're not the people who, they're not, these, these guys are, are hearing the music, not somebody who actually might enjoy it.
2: You had a great song um, a couple records ago about turning 31. And a lot of this stuff was happening as you were in that sort of part of your life. ¶¶
3: because I didn't really, like, that really was, when I was 31, that really was when all that all this stuff was happening. And, um, you know, like, yeah, I, th- like, I think that probably did pile it on. You know, I, I was writing that song out of just a, the memory of, you know, like, when, when you're a kid and you, you think, like, oh, when I'm in my 30s, like, my life's going to be set. You know, I'm, I'm going to be grown up and, you know, things are going to be up and running and it's, there's not going to be question marks so to kind of reach this age and go, wow, it's all question marks. It's nothing but question marks.
2: After a break, more with Amy Mann. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. You can follow Bullseye on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com Bullseye with Jesse Thorne and click like. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the singer-songwriter Amy Mann. Her latest album is called Charmer. I want to take a listen to a little bit of Save Me from uh, the Magnolia soundtrack, um, a a song that was, uh, among other things, nominated, got you nominated for an Oscar.
5: You look like
2: Was it different to experience the fame and success that you had from uh, the songs that you uh, had on the Magnolia soundtrack and the album that you had out at that time than when you were in your early twenties, fifteen years earlier?
3: Well, you know the 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 success of Till Tuesday I felt was it was like a, you know it was like a promise I couldn't keep. And and the the promise was that we're uh, a big commercial band, and I and I was like I just always felt like I could not deliver on this this promise in uh, you know performance wise. I mean, playing live, you know, and that was very difficult. I really I did not know how to make that happen. It was you know singing was not easy. I don't, you know I, mean, I don't think my voice is that great, and it was you know I I certainly didn't think it was very good then and. You know, so it was just all and I just always felt like I was coming short, you know, was not hitting, not hitting the mark. And and with Magnolia, I felt like that was, you know, my my best work. I thought Save Me was one of one of my best songs. So I it really was, you know, more I felt putting my best foot forward and and, uh, you know, felt very like a lot more solid about it.
2: Um. Before the Oscars, you made a joke somewhere about um, Phil Collins was also nominated. He ended up winning that year yeah. for something that he wrote for the film Tarzan. Yeah. Fondly re- remembered film Tarzan.
3: <laughs>
2: um, and I think... The you,
3: cartoon always wins.
2: Yeah. You you, you made some kind of... Uh, you made a joke about, like, booing Phil Collins that yeah. I heard that actually led to Phil Collins, um, like, looking into the situation
3: yeah. personally. Yeah. I can't remember exactly what happened, but I think he like said, yeah, I think his people called. I, it was something like that, like yeah. And then I was like, dude, it's a, it's a joke. <laughs> everybody, I mean, everybody wants to see someday, like see somebody like get really upset that that they didn't win. I mean, that was just a funny, you know. I thought that would be hilarious, and I thought, look, now's here's the opportunity. I can be that person, but of course, I couldn't. <laughs> I um, too nice.
2: Uh like like you at least at the time. I'm I'm not personally a, a huge Phil Collins fan, but um I which is not to say I have anything against Phil Collins. In no small part because we had him on the show one time and he was just a wonderful man. Yeah, he like, is very sweet. Couldn't have been a more pleasant, funny, yeah. interesting guy. And um I I wonder if you ever like if you ever had a face-to-face meeting with him?
3: I think I saw him in the halls at the Oscar. I like. I'm pretty sure I did. I think we passed each other, and it was like, oh, sorry about the thing, or what, you know? Yeah, I think there was like a very brief det- detente. Yeah, I'm sure I've heard he's very nice, and he's. I mean, he's got songs that I like. You know, like I'm not. I'm. I, I'm not anti Phil Collins by. Look, Susudio. Okay, that's. <laughs> we all have our. <laughs> we all have our dark skeletons in, in our closets, but. <laughs> But God you know, God bless him i got I have nothing against him
2: um, how is your uh songwriting different now that you are um, that you are an experienced hand, so to speak both both in terms of your process and in terms of the product
3: i think I mean really, the short answer and this doesn't mean anything to anybody but i I feel that I'm better. According to the standards that are my own, you know, and a lot of it is just is trying to refine a lot. Probably most of it is trying to refine the the lyric writing process, like having having rhymes be perfect rhymes if possible. I, you know, like, but there is. All, but, you know, but it doesn't take much for me to go like, you know, what it's not going to get any better. Like, let it go. Um, I mean, I do sort of think like good enough is good enough. But. But I do, you know, but I do try to try to have, you know, perfect rhymes and internal rhymes and the meter to be really locked in because I, I just feel like on a on like a real visceral level, it's very fun for people to hear that, you know, to hear rhymes that are exact and hear these kind of internal things so and like, you know, have the meter be really locked in from verse to verse. Um, but that's all like my that's all like the just the bar that I you know I, I enjoy when other people like meet that bar which is probably like Stephen Sondheim and nobody else
2: let's hear another song from your new album Charmer this song is called Labrador by my guest Amy Mann
5: Daisy you shouldn't do the things you do but you're just so incapable of changing You lie so well could never even tell What were facts in your art for rearranging i give back for more
2: So, I guess the question uh, that occurred to me as I was listening to this song suite of songs about uh, about destructive narcissism uh, was, what are you doing here in Los Angeles, the home of destructive narcissism?
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, a series of accidents. <laughs> Believe me, narcissism is all around us. It's everywhere. You know, although... It's the indus- It's like, uh, the, the, you know, the industry of this town is built on making things appear to be different than they are, which is kind of the soul of narcissism, right? You know, being more concerned about how things look than how things are. But at least in this industry, people are aware of how things are because they're seeing it, you know, on the set every day. Like, they're, they're not, you know, they're not really... F- Almost like the people in the industry are less fooled by the the appearance than, than other people. Except for maybe actors. Actors are pretty crazy. But <laughs> you have to admit.
5: Not all of them. You say you do? I could almost shed a tear. It shine in the time we have remaining. a time.
2: I want to hear uh, one more song from your new record. It's called Crazy Town. Before you go, I want to ask you about boxing. This has been a hobby of yours for a while. You do not have a boxer's build.
6: Well,
3: it, not a heavyweight. <laughs> I think at this point, <laughs> at this point, I am probably a a flyweight. I I'm, I do not weigh a lot, and as you can see, there's not a lot of muscle on me.
2: I had a teacher in middle school uh, who was a flyweight. Uh, he was like f- five foot one and uh he was just a, a human muscle like a ti- yeah. like a skinny human mu- like all there was there was just going thrup,
3: thrup, yeah thrup. you know what
2: i
5: mean
3: well there's some boxers you know like i got the reach so I, I have the i have the jab and that's that's not too bad but i you know i'm not really i'm not i'm not in the <laughs> ring i'm not going round and round with anyone
2: um have have you gotten uh punched in the face yes I'm afraid to be punched in the face. What was it like to be punched in the face?
3: It's uh, well, I mean, boxing is very interesting in my experience. Now, I don't really do it anymore for a variety of reasons, mostly because I I, ha- I can't wear contacts anymore. So, you know, you're not doing a lot of boxing in glasses. Uh, so, but but I did but I did do some sparring, and you know, I, I, it's interesting. I mean, I I weirdly equate it with. Uh, some of the lessons I learned with performing uh, because a lot of it is you know you get hit and you have to go you know what move on like you don't you can't get mad because that throws you off your game and your strategy Uh, you you just you just have to keep you know you just have to keep going forward and and I you know and I remember that like I think about that all the time when I'm on stage if I make a mistake or I forget something I'm like move on it's over because keep keep going forward you know cuz you got you know you got to you got to finish it out
2: amy man's newest record is called charmer
5: but there's <laughs> some crawling back up from the ocean you can't keep everyone at bay yeah Starts with an accident or failure. It all starts with a great big bang. And guess who's gonna have to play the jailer? And guess who's gonna lead the chain gang?
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. this topsy-turvy world, only one man can bring order to the thousands, nay, millions of things that exist. With his signature segment, Jordan Ranks America, here's Jordan Morris.
6: Entering the chart at number five this month, it's 19-year-olds. Wow, 19-year-olds. Your explanation for why you're not religious anymore was so beautiful, so eloquent, I feel like it could have been plucked out of a best-selling novel. Holding fast at number four, it's Smash Mouth. It may seem like this mid-90s party rock band has been laying low as of late, but every time someone watches a Shrek movie on cable, they hear 30 seconds of a Smash Mouth song, a proverbial masterclass in staying relevant. Still in the mix at number three, it's Man Caves. Do actual men really hang out in the basement watching sports and playing Xbox away from their wives? Or is man cave just a buzzword invented by marketing companies to sell fast food and beer? There's literally no way to know unless our elected officials get off their lazy duffs and do their job. Coming out of nowhere at number two, it's Your Girlfriend's Friend from Work. She's a little quiet and seems to have emotional problems, but she and your GF sure do seem to enjoy their inside jokes. Leading the pack at number one, it's bananas. Grab one for a breakfast on the go, throw it into a smoothie, or hold it up to your ear and pretend it's a telephone. Is there anything these jungle wonder fruits can't do? From the bottom to the top, I'm Jordan Morris.
2: Jordan Morris co-hosts the podcast Jordan Jesse Go with me, Jesse. He also stars in the web series Game Shop. You can find it at youtube.com slash start. After a break, I'll talk with marketing guru Seth Godin about putting art into the world that markets itself. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by MailChimp. With email newsletters and social media integration, MailChimp is like your own personal publishing platform.
4: To my blessed old brother David, happy birthday. Love,
2: Lisa. Online at MailChimp.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our show is about art, or at least culture, and the people who make it. I never thought I'd invite onto our show a guy who most people know as a marketing guru. My guest Seth Godin is a marketing guru, but he's a different kind of one. In best selling books like The Purple Cow, Tribes, and Lynchpin, he's focused on creating products that market themselves work that's honest and remarkable, and work that honors customers, whether the customers are folks using software, people buying widgets, or people listening to music. He has three. Count them three new books out. V for Vulnerable is a picture book for adults about doing scary creative work. The Icarus Deception is about the same thing, how to make something authentic and vibrant outside of your comfort zone. What you're going to do with that duck is 600 pages of Godin's writing for his blog, one of the most popular business blogs in the world. Seth Godin, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show.
0: Well, it's a, uh, one of my life's dreams to be on the show with you. So thank you, Jesse. I'm a, I'm a big fan.
2: I wish that was more people's life's dream. I could be like Derek Jeter visiting sick children and inviting them on my radio show.
0: There you go. I mean, I guess if I had giant dreams, then they wouldn't come true. But this one was attainable, and I'm thrilled I pulled it off. (laughs)
2: Um, Okay, so here's my first question. I I hope you won't think it rude. But I I think I alluded to the fact in the introduction uh, to this segment that in my mind, sort of in the abstract, marketing guru is pretty much the worst thing you can be because I think of marketing as being a trick <laughs> and like one of the only parts of capitalism that I, I'm not quite on board with. Um, and I wonder if you've ever, if you ever thought about that as you found yourself becoming a marketing expert. Um, and how you worked it over in your mind.
0: Well, I'm completely down with you and in agreement about most marketing. I'm not sure I agree on the capitalist thing, like dumping PCBs in the Hudson is also not high on my list. (laughs) Uh, Here's the thing. It's the sea monkeys' fault. Now, you may remember sea monkeys from the comic books when we were growing up. And what happened was what often happened with marketing, which is some... Industrialist, some guy with a company has an average product for average people, pretty junky. He gives it to the marketer along with some money and says, "Put on a show, put on a wrapper, trick some people into buying this thing So if you ever bought sea monkeys, you know that what you really got was a little tiny packet of invisible, mostly dead brine shrimp, and you were bitter you that was a dollar ninety nine of hard earned newspaper money, and here you had you'd been tricked um This started to shift a little while ago uh, when marketing and advertising stopped being the same thing. So in the days of Mad Men, your marketing budget and your ad budget were the same thing. Um, But now what a new breed of marketers is discovering is that you're better off spending the money doing something brave and spending the money making a product or a service that people actually want to talk about because it's too hard to fool all the people all the time.
2: I want to ask you too about the guru part of it, um, which is to say, there was a really lovely, uh, touching post on your blog a couple of months ago when Zig Ziglar died, and um, you know he is he is as as archetypal a business guru as ever there could be. I mean, a man that you know traveled the world, inspiring you know, lines clubs to CEOs to achieve their dreams and close their deals and think positively and all these things. Um, what was your relationship to that world and specifically to, to Ziegler?
0: Well, I miss him. Um, for seven years I was near bankruptcy. Um, For seven years, I was getting rejected from everything I pitched, and most projects I touched turned to dust. And there was a lot of pressure, family and otherwise, for me to give it up and become a, I don't know, a bank teller. Uh, And I bought the Zig Ziglar cassette tapes and listened to them in my car for literally thousands of hours uh, until I basically memorized them.
2: What's on them? I mean, I've I've never heard them.
0: Well, you know, Zieg, uh grew up in Yazoo City, uh, Mississippi, and is a storyteller, or was, and came from the lineage of sort of Baptist preachers. Most of his best work was him telling stories about selling pots and pans door-to-door or Johnny the Shoeshine Guy in St. Louis or stories about his best friend whose son had a form of muscular dystrophy. Um, some of the stories would last 10, 15, 20 minutes, and what you learned from these stories uh, was the benefit of feeding your mind, uh, of understanding that you could help other people uh, at the same time that you want, were delivering something of value. Uh, it wasn't about manipulation as much as it was about um, understanding that you had some choices to make about what attributes and skills you developed and what you were going to bring to the world around you. Now, some people, and this is where I think the, the guru thing, uh, a mantle I wear sort of as a joke, um, got a, a bad name, is that some people would hear this sort of advice and use it to indulge their selfish nature and to manipulate other people. And some people would use the ability to sound like a guru to maximize their income and their profit, and it becomes a caricature, something a role Tom Cruise uh, can play in a movie. Uh, so that if you put too many burning embers in the middle of your seminar it starts to be all uh, fluff and no substance. I think the the key distinctions are, one, are you doing it uh, to generate something for yourself or are you doing it to help the people you're teaching? And two, are you giving people a map or a compass? And I work very hard to be in the compass business.
2: When you were um, failing and you f- found Zig Ziglar tapes and listened to them in your car until they wore out. Um, What changed about you or your life?
0: Well, you know, it's so easy to caricature Zig. He talked about uh, go lights instead of stop lights and other sort of, you know, juvenile uh, touchstones. But what changed for me, the biggest thing that changed for me, is that every no became a no for now. Every no became one step closer to a yes from somebody else. Every failure became a lesson that taught me one more thing that isn't going to work. So I stopped saying, how do I please this person right this minute across the table so I can make a sale? And I shifted to, what am I trying to do here in the first place? What's the dent I'm trying to make in the universe? And if this person doesn't get the joke, that's okay. Maybe they'll teach me something that will help me tell the story to the next person so they will get the joke. But that what I shouldn't do is compromise the principle and the mission just to make a sale today. And that was before the Internet. Today it's even more important because you leave a trail today for all to see. And so when you compromise and pander and and jump in with the pack, we can see it a month later and a year later, and you can't deny it. And so the the folks that we're highlighting today and that we're following today and that we're engaging with the records that we buy or the movies we see tend to be made by people who are authentic. I mean, I thought your interview with Judd Apatow was brilliant. And part of it was that what you heard from him is that he's been making the same movie from the beginning, which is an honest movie that he wants to talk about, something that's happened to him as opposed to him focus grouping and corporatizing what he does to figure out how to get the maximum box office.
2: There's this part in uh, your book, The Icarus Deception, where you describe these uh, – you, you call them the assets that matter. Um, and they're things that I recognize – as as in some ways you know the the core values that you, that you've been pushing in in your blog and in your writing and your work for years um and you know to some extent you've you've added to them made a fuller picture um tackled one at a time but it it feels almost like a manifesto i, I wonder if we could talk about about those for a second
0: um sure go ahead and tee them up because i don't have yeah. this right in front of me
2: yeah sure the, the the first of them is, and and this is this is something that you describe as as being key to successful organizations, freelancers and soloists, which basically means anybody that makes anything. <laughs> in 2012, in the first world, um, the first of them is trust. W- what does that mean?
0: Well. If you're going to go buy toothpaste or you're going to go to a chiropractor or your business is going to hire an accountant, you can't kick the tires. You have to believe at some point and make a leap. And so when we enter the marketplace, some organizations are saying, my goal is to build trust. Everything I do is to support that single mission. How do I build more trust? So that's what I'm trying to do, for example, on my blog. My blog has no ads. I don't sell anything. But what I'm trying to do is earn the trust of more people because with trust, you can accomplish a lot more.
2: That's very deeply related to the second asset, which is permission. And that was the the subject of your first big book, Permission Marketing. What what does permission mean in, in this context?
0: Well, so let's think about it from the point of view, for example, of a podcast. In in the old days, there were only five radio stations that mattered in any given town. So if someone was going to listen to the radio, they were probably going to pick you. But in a world where there's 10,000 podcasts to choose from, the only ones that have any impact are ones that people have elected to listen to. So this permission, the privilege of people listening to you is something that you earn. You can't buy it. And so all the big brands that are struggling are discovering they can't buy any more TV ads. They can't get any more newspaper ads that pay for themselves. All that's left is to earn this privilege of whispering to people when you have something to say to them. And hence, we see uh, people lining up to buy the next thing from Apple Computer that no one has ever used before. The reason they even know about it is because they have given Apple permission to whisper to them in the form of an announcement, it's ready. And all they have to do is say it's ready, and all these people run to go get it. Now, this is not an accident. This is something you build. It's something you earn. You earn it by making stuff that along the way was eccentric enough that it failed, that along the way was interesting enough that I want to know what the next one is. So if all you're going to do is make average stuff for average people, I'm not going to give you my permission. But if you are in my corner always on the cutting edge cutting that new record or telling that new joke or doing that new kind of art in a way that i i would miss it if it was gone then i am more likely to give you my permission to tell me about the next one
2: i thought it was really interesting that you included eccentric enough to fail in an interesting way in that list of qualities because the thing that the thing that worries me is is that people in in an effort to build those two qualities that we've talked about so far trust and permission want to essentially play it safe so they don't mess up and don't disappoint people
0: exactly and they do it because they're afraid afraid to take responsibility for doing the thing that people didn't like but trust is not about always doing it right trust Is about what you do if it doesn't work. That's how we build trust, right? We don't trust an airline because they always get us there without killing us. We trust an airline because when things mess up, they make it right. And so we earn this privilege of getting attention first. We get attention because we're interesting. And then we get trust because we tell the truth and we keep our promises. And so the Wright brothers were wrong and they were wrong and they were wrong and they were wrong. And then one day they were right. But they would never have gotten to write, no pun intended, if they hadn't been wrong all those times before. And the same thing is true with Elvis Costello and the same thing is true with Kurt Vonnegut. So when you decide to to, to trod the path of the artist, you are not saying, I will always be perfect. You're saying, I will always be interesting.
2: It seems to me like part of the difference between um – Between two things that you've described, one is doing something interesting and failing, and the other is just putting something out and saying, if you don't like it, you can return it. You know, both of, you know, only one of those has a guarantee. It's the second one. But only one of those is driven by values that people can recognize, which is the first one.
0: Right. It's about being human. We, we're we we're en- we're exiting an era of 100 years of being corporate and saying, you pay your money, you take your chances. This is cheaper than the other guy. We have a big box store. And we are reentering this era of being human, of Kickstarter and podcasts and people who uh, are doing machine-aided design, sending something overseas. Who knows who makes it, right? You're not buying it from the person who made it. You're buying from the person who designed it, who told you the story about it, who connected you to it. And the important distinction to make here, Jesse, which is really important, is most of us were raised to believe that art was something that was made by other people. That some magical art lightning bolt hit Pablo Picasso when he was little, and he gets to be an artist and we don't. And in fact, it's just not true, that we have been brainwashed into thinking that we are cogs in a corporate machine. But given the chance... Human beings are capable of being human, and it doesn't have to be art with a paintbrush or art with a stand-up microphone, stand-up comedian's microphone. It can be the art of customer service and the art of delivering health care, that when we act like a human, other humans respond with trust and permission. But when we act like a corporation, we're held to a totally different standard, and people just want to know, is it cheap, and can I get my money back?
2: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Seth Godin. Most people know him as a marketing guru, but he's sort of a different kind of marketing guru. Mainly, he's not super creepy. He has three new books out, V for Vulnerable, The Icarus Deception, and What You Gonna Do With That Duck. One of the six values or the six assets that matter is humanity, which I think is partly what you've been describing. You describe that as, as connection, compassion, and humility. Um, I don't think, I, I don't think that uh, humility is a quality that we often associate with successful business or even successful creators. Um, why did you include humility?
0: Well, you know, I, in talking to people Um, like Elizabeth Gilbert and others who have touched others, what I hear from them is that they're okay with the expression, this might not work. That to go to a meeting at a corporation and say, I'd love to do this, but it might not work, is a very difficult thing to say. Because MBAs are taught to always say, here's spreadsheets, I have proof it will work. But in Silicon Valley, they say this might not work all the time. And at Columbia Records during its heyday was all about this might not work. YouTube is this farm team of stuff that might not work, right? Korean pop. It's never worked before. Why is it going to work this time? I don't know. It might not work. But the price, the cost of bringing this to the market keeps going down.
2: One of the six assets is leadership. Um, which I mean, you, you make some interesting distinctions in discussing leadership. One of them is that most leaders' jobs historically has been to essentially replicate and refine the work that went before them, um, and that that is no longer in outside of uh, you know the classic industrialized mechanized economy. You know that's sort of a twentieth-century value.
0: Yet no one talks about the fact that they have leaders at the local McDonald's. They have managers because the manager's job is to get the team to do what they did yesterday but a little faster, a little cheaper, and a little bit more reliably. Uh, Management is something we've figured out pretty well. But leadership is about these leaps in the dark and about being willing to go forward, creating a vacuum behind you so that people will follow you. And the great leaders in politics and business and mathematics and, and music are all doing something that while they're doing it, many people around them are saying they're crazy. And they are crazy because they're doing something that might not work. But once they do it and it works, then the vacuum behind them sucks the people along and they move forward. What happens now that everyone owns a media channel that everyone can broadcast where they want to go and what they want to do and what they want to make is that you don't need a building or a permit or a badge to be a leader now. You can just lead. Here's a microphone. If you want to sing, sing. If you want to dance, dance. If you want to make a video, make a video. So when a filmmaker starts today, if Steven Spielberg were starting today, the answer would not be to lie his way onto the universal lot and figure out how to get under someone's um, tutelage. The answer would be, Go get yourself a $149 camera and make a damn movie and put it on the Internet and see what happens. And if it's not right, then make a different one, a better one, that if our art doesn't work, our job is to make better art.
2: There are two uh, a- assets in your list of six assets that we haven't talked about yet. Um, and there are, I think, two that are very deeply linked. Um, the first is Remarkability. What does remarkability mean?
0: Is that a word Um, you made up? Is that a real word even? I make up a lot of words, but I had to quit playing that letterpress app on my phone because I was spending too much time on it. So I don't know if remarkability (laughs) is a real word or not. But what it means is simple. You used to be able to buy attention. Now you can't. Attention spreads from one person to another. It spreads when one person remarks about your work. So if someone leaves the movie theater and tells three other people how great your movie is, you're on. It's going to work, right? And so it doesn't have to be good. It has to be remarkable in the sense that I care enough about what you made that I want other people to see it.
2: And the other one is stories that spread, which is very deeply connected to remarkability, I think. Um, What is the quality of a story that makes it something that someone wants to tell someone else?
0: Well, let's be clear about what I mean by a story. So Little Red Riding Hood is a story in the sense that it has a middle and an end and a beginning. But the stories I'm talking about are a little bit more metaphorical than that. So that when Susan Cain spoke at TED about shyness versus extroverts, um, the story, the inherent story in that is that it's okay to not be the garrulous extrovert all the time teams can benefit from the more introspective person. So that's my you know, summary of what she said over 18 minutes. But it's stuck in my head. I mean, I've seen a thousand TED Talks, but that one's stuck in my head because that story, that truth, the nugget of it resonates with me. And it's more likely, if I'm going to talk about what I saw at TED, that A, I will talk about her talk because it was remarkable, and B, the story of it is one that can be encapsulated and spread to the next person.
2: There's this thing that you uh, write a lot about in in the new book, The Icarus Deception, which is um, kind of the the opposite of what I think people go to gurus to learn about. And good, it's, <laughs> and it's something that I something that I learned from my friend Merlin Mann, who had this very, very, very popular blog and realized that he kind of felt like people were going to it for what you described earlier as a map and that he wasn't really giving them, he wasn't giving them what he felt like was actually useful to them. And, and so he had to just sort of stop doing that. Um, despite the fact that he had been very successful at it and, um, and you write a lot in this book about the fact that that doing this kind of thing that whatever being presumptive enough to try doing something in a completely different way um being creative in general is typically painful that people want to come to you for a way to do for a map to do something relatively painlessly to do something new in a way that has already been proven, but basically what you're telling them is you're just going to have to wade into the thorn bush? Yeah. That's a a weird thing for a guru to sell, Seth.
0: Well, but I don't have anything to sell, Jesse. That's the key benefit of the way I've constructed my career is I don't do any coaching. I don't do any consulting. I have no add-on products to sell. The blog is free, the the audios are free, the videos are free because I'm not here to sell you something. I'm here to make you uncomfortable. And if it's too uncomfortable, you'll leave and that's okay with me because you don't get the joke. I am so fortunate that I get to do this thing that I get to make my art and the same way that it's okay for a painter to have you not get his painting or Gary Larson to have you not get the joke of the Far Side cartoon today, it's okay with me. If you're not up for the pain, um, what drives me is this. I, I uh, gave a talk to a bunch of educators and in the Q&A, a woman stood up. She said, I helped run a community college and all this leadership and art stuff is fine for other people. But what you don't understand, Seth, is that we have to let in everybody. And the people we let in, these people, they're not artists. These people will never make a difference. These people aren't capable of doing the kind of leadership that you are describing. And I re- I literally shed a tear right there on the stage because I couldn't believe this woman who had been trusted by so many thousands of people and the taxpayers had this idea that art was for other people, but that her people, people who looked the way they did, had no right to it. And yeah, it's super painful, but it's not expensive. And it's not based on where you grew up. That what we did that's so incredibly empowering is that anybody who's got a Wi-Fi connection has access to a market of a billion people who might want to listen to them. And if people start listening to you and trusting you, then as painful as it is, you can start changing things and you can start changing the conversation. And inevitably, if you are good at that, you will be able to make a living at it. You know, maybe not a Steven Spielberg-sized living, but a living. I've never, ever met anyone who said, too many people trust me, too many people know my ideas, I'm having trouble making a living. So what do you do
2: when it's painful?
0: That's the compass. That's the signal that you're on to something. That if I'm busy writing and I'm saying, yeah, 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 this one's, I'm in, then I've written banal pap right? If I'm writing and I'm realizing as I'm writing that a third of my audience is going to give up or that a quarter of them are going to slam the book or that I'm going to get someone who misunderstood what, I, misunderstood what I just said, then I know I'm onto something, that our job as artists is to find the edge between complete non-acceptance and applause. It's right in that zone that we get to do something that's interesting.
2: Seth, what do you do when you have an idea that's a really good idea, like a really solid idea, but you can't, you can't come up with an appropriate illustrative narrative.
0: Um, because you are what?
2: super good at illustrative narratives. I am <laughs> in awe of the volume of illustrative narratives that you're capable of generating.
0: Well, you totally stopped me with that one. I think the question that I ask myself all the time is, who is this story for? that you tell a different story to a venture capitalist than you tell to uh, an 18-year-old music student. And you want that story to resonate with the worldview they already have. Because changing someone's worldview is difficult and time-consuming and usually fails. But hooking into a worldview they already have, saying, you believe this and this leverages into that, is the way you start change to happen. And What I do for a living, my son likes to point out I'm unemployed, what I do for a living is I notice things, and what I am always looking for is what about this, this success or this failure, what about it hooks in to what other people already believe? So how can I describe it to them so they can see what I'm seeing?
2: Well, Seth, we've been talking for quite a long time, um, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. And And honestly, for taking the time to make the world of business a a little less creepy.
0: Well, we're working every day, Jesse, to make it less creepier still. I will keep up the good work if you will, too. If you want
2: to read Seth Godin's blog, you can just type into the internet Seth's blog. It works. I've done it myself. Um, His three new books are The Icarus Deception, V is for vulnerable and what you're going to do with that duck. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. There's a great story about P.T. Barnum. And as with most great stories, I'm not entirely certain it's true. Barnum's Museums were full of what you might charitably call hokum, or bunk. A classic example, the Fiji Mermaid, which was a monkey sewed to a fish. The honest truth, of course, is that at the time, the whole idea of establishing truth, concrete scientific truth, was pretty new. So anyway, the story is that in Barnum's Museum, there was a series of signs that said, This way to the egress. And the paying guests would follow the signs, the first sign, the second, the third, wondering, what is an egress? Until eventually the last sign dumped them completely without ceremony onto the street outside the museum. So as it turns out, that series of signs was one of the few things in Barnum's world that wasn't a trick, Because egress, if you don't know, is just a fancy word for exit. And so the people would be kind of miffed, and then they'd laugh, and then they'd pay again to get back in. The question this story suggests to me, at least, is when we pay to get in, are we paying for truth, or are we paying for a great story? Orson Welles, a showman like few others, understood the consequences of bunk and hokum and fiction implicitly. One of his greatest works, The War of the Worlds, was, of course, a hoax. His greatest, Citizen Kane, was a fiction built to represent a truth, the life of a real man, as imagined by Wells. That's probably why his last masterwork, F for Fake, is so confounding and hilarious and fascinating. Behold,
0: before our very eyes,
2: a transformation a sort of documentary or maybe a film essay. It's about a great art forger, Elmire de Horry.
0: If you you hang them in a the museum and a collection great paintings and if they hang long enough there they become real.
2: And about his biographer, Clifford Irving. The important
4: distinction to make when you're talking about the genuine quality of a painting is not so much whether it's A real painting or a fake. It's whether it's a good fake or a bad fake.
2: Irving, if you don't know, also wrote the autobiography of Howard Hughes. He sold it for three quarters of a million dollars to a publisher. A few months later, the public and the publisher discovered that Irving had never met Hughes in his life. It was a hoax. When it was revealed that he was a liar, Irving wrote another book about how he tricked the world.
1: Can you say anything about the, um, the deal that you've managed to do with the book? I mean, is it, ha- has it turned out as well as you'd expected? Uh, the, the deal? Are you going to tell the whole truth?
4: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, in fact, the title is the book about the book. In two years,
2: Well's introduction comes with a magic trick and an actress, Well's partner, Oya Coder, and a few sneaky shots of his camera crew at work. And it ends in a bit of editing jicanery that mirrors the sleight of hand Wells performed at the start. Wells is telling a story, and he reminds us that he's in charge, but also that he's not above the occasional trick. I'd say it's Brechtian, except that in showing us the workings of theater, Brecht was trying to reveal the tricks of fiction to get us viewers to confront fact. In making F for fake, Wells wants to sort of dance in the middle ground. But the good news is, it is a wonderful, charming dance.
4: Almost any story is almost certainly
0: some kind of lie. But not this time. No, this is a promise. During the next hour, everything you'll hear from us is really true
4: and based on solid facts.
2: As Wells narrates from his editing booth, we see these stories play out before us. Elmire, the forger asking us to confront our ideas about the nature of art, Irving, the expert writer revealed as a charlatan himself, Wells admitting his own charlatanism, as a director and editor using that moviola in front of him to cut and transform the filmic document. It's an argument against the academy, that force which Barnum was discovering and impersonating in the 19th century, which by the 20th century had consolidated its power and codified its methods.
0: Cliff Irving's caper may well be the hoax of the century, but
4: really this is not, you know, in any way the century of the hoax. We hanky-panky men have always been with you. That's a fact. What's new? Are The experts. The
0: The so-called experts.
4: Experts are the new oracles.
0: Who are greatly pretentious.
4: They speak to us with the absolute authority of the computer. Pretend to know something. But they only know very superficially. And we bow down before them. They're God's own gift to the faker. All the world loves to see the experts and the establishment made a fool of.
2: And all this interrogation and fainting and disguise and illusion builds to a third act so sly and surprising and funny that I won't reveal it here. I'd never pull a trick like that on you. Picasso
4: himself said it. Art, he said, is a lie.
2: A lie that makes us realize the truth. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music provided by Dan Waller. Thanks this week to Jason Isaac at WNYC for engineering help with our Seth Godin interview. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud, where you can share your favorite segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign on Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.